Now, back to this wonderful human being, uh, the Dalai Lama. We need to be praying for him because he is lost as a goose, as if he believes everything that Buddhism teaches. He does not know Christ, so we need to be praying for that, that that man would would come to a place of being born again and receiving, receiving the, the truth of the gospel. The quick facts, just to run through these, every time we do this, I try to give you the quick facts. It's a really good way to, to kind of get a, get a grip on what the uh, false teaching is we're looking at. Uh, Siddhartha Gautama followed the paths of previous Buddhas or enlightened ones until he discovered the middle road. That's, you'll hear that a lot, the middle road, the middle road, the four noble truths and the eightfold path and achieved enlightenment. Buddhism shows a heavy influence of Brahmanism. I looked that up today. I looked up Brahmanism. Extremely vague. Um, just, it's just a, all it ever said was an old form of Hinduism, uh, kind of the early stage of Hinduism, but nobody can really give you... I mean, I, I researched it online for a few minutes and just couldn't find really, really anything. Yes, sir. Bramer bull, yeah, I don't, know if, I don't know if it's related or not, but yeah, they're supposed to be, them. that's them mean, mean bulls with them big old humps on their back. Yeah, they're, they're tough bulls. So Buddhism shows a heavy influence of Brahmanism, gods and goddesses in Buddhist history and teachings. Its description of a universal cosmic consciousness is that of a non-personal essence, sometimes called the void. How would you like to know that your non-personal essence is called the void? That's just awful. The Pali Tripitaka text is considered by many to be the most reliable teachings of Buddha, although Mahayana Buddhism and other sects add to it. I would not waste my time reading any of that. Man suffers because his desires are fixated on the illusion of self. So this is all an illusion that we're experiencing here tonight, which confines him to non-permanence within the laws of karma and reincarnation. Uh, we've touched on karma a little bit last time. We'll touch on it some more tonight. Self-salvation, that term in itself is just terrible, is achieved by following the middle path, the Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Path. And the ultimate goal is to reach the state of what? Nirvana. Not the wonderful rock group that came out in the 90s, okay? They are okay. What they teach is complete gobbledygook. All right, classical Buddhism, the enslaving caste system, played an important part for the Indian reformers like Buddha who sought liberation from Hinduism. Just, just, I'm giving you just two or three panels from last Bible study before we go into the fresh information tonight, just to recenter us in what's going on. Another important aspect of modern Hindu life, the caste system began to emerge during the Vedic period. The system of classifying individuals into castes is vocational and related to skin color. That doesn't sound racist at all, does it? You ever hear people talk about Buddhists being racist? But I mean, their, 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 their foundational roots was a caste system, which is one of the most racist systems on earth, period. Uh, probably as racist as South Africa. Um, the, the Rig Veda speaks of five social castes, the Brahmins, the priestly scholar caste, the I don't even want the Kshatriyas, the warrior soldier caste, the the Vashyas, the agriculture and merchant caste, the Sudras, the peasant and servant caste, and then the Harajan, which is the outcast or the untouchable. So he gives you the top and he goes all the way down to the bottom. Okay? There seemed to be no escape from the fate of having to endure an endless succession of painful lives before one could be freed to merge for eternity with the world soul 
a state known as Nirvana. Into this religion of strict caste and oppression was born the son of a minor raja or king sometime between 490 and 410 B.C. His philosophy of life would impact the world for centuries to come. Gautama Buddha, founder of the Buddhist religion, was the son of Sudhodana, a chieftain reigning over a district near the Himalayas in what is known today as the country of Nepal. At an early age, Siddhartha Gautama, his true name, observed the many contradictions and problems of life. He abandoned his wife and son when he felt he could no longer endure the life of a rich nobleman and became a wandering ascetic in search of the truth about life. Okay? Buddhist historians tell us that after almost seven years of wandering, inquiring, meditating, and searching, he found the true path, the great enlightenment under the legendary bow tree, and thus attained what? Nirvana, yeah. Classical Buddhism maintains that cycles of reincarnations are necessary in order to attain nirvana. One thing you'll see through this study that Walter points out is that you have to go through all of these cycles of reincarnation to somehow overcome sin. So it's not through faith in Christ, which is what we believe, what God teaches. It's this, somehow these, these cycles of reincarnations. Now, how on earth that is done, they don't tell you. They just tell you that's what you have to do to get there, okay? The teachings of the Buddha are concerned with the ramifications of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So the Four Noble Truths are suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the way which leads to this cessation. So one of their primary things they're trying to do is to minimize suffering because suffering is bad. Well, think about Christianity for a second. I mean, what is one of the primary focuses of, um, of one of God's methods of helping us understand who he is. Yeah, suffering. Now, we don't, we, don't like to, we don't like to think about that, okay? We don't like to think about that. That is absolutely the truth. Uh, suffering, trials, tribulations, God uses these types of things to help us understand and learn who he is because he, went, he gave the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate suffering by being the voluntary sacrifice, the Son of God on Calvary's cross. In shortest form, Buddhist teaching may be summarized as follows. Birth is sorrow, age is sorrow, sickness is sorrow, death is sorrow, clinging to earthly things is sorrow. Birth and rebirth, the chain of reincarnation, result from the thirst of life together with passion and desire. The only escape from this thirst is to follow the eightfold path, which is right belief, right resolve, right word, right act, right life, right effort, right thinking, right meditation. But, of course, the major question is what determines what's right. I mean, what determines that? And he never, you never really know. It doesn't really ever tell you. Just whatever, whatever, whatever does not cause suffering, you, you would assume, right? The goal of Buddhism is nirvana. There it is again. So they love that word. A definition of this term is almost impossible for the simple reason that Buddha himself gave no clear idea and in all probability possessed none of this state. So again, remember, in Christianity, it's, it's, we have objective truth right? We have special revelation in the Bible that clearly explains salvation, clearly explains Israel, clearly explains the covenant structure. That's objective. In all, most of these false religious cults, it's mostly subjective, right? It's the individual, the, the false cult leader has gone to 
what should be accepted as objective truth, and he, they have refiltered it through their own interpretation and made it subjective. And so now, instead of the object of, of, of our faith being Christ, it's subjective. It's the false teacher. You have to come to me. I'm the one that dispenses the truth. I'm the one that enlightens you, and, and that's what Buddha does. That's a, that's, a big, that's a big shift. Anybody know where that is? Right down the street. I can remember when we were, were here uh, looking around at the community, and uh, I can't remember, somebody had told us to go down Old Nashville Highway and, and to you know, look, look around. And so we, we, we come over that big hill right there, and we come down that hill, bam, there is a Buddhist temple. I have never seen a Buddhist temple in my life, in real life, and there that sucker sat right there on the side of the highway, less than six miles from where I live. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. What? They get drunk every night. Well, they get drunk because they're trying to get to nirvana, I guess, right? What better way to get to nirvana than get intoxicated? Sir? Oh, really? Okay. So that's, that's old Nashville Highway you see right there to the left, and that's, that's one of the statues that's out there. You know, they're, being, they're doing it. Have y'all seen the big addition they're doing? They're like building a huge addition to the right of it. I don't know what, what it is, but they're expanding. All right, back to classical Buddhism. Here's the um, Dr. Wing Sit Chan, the uh, professor of Chinese culture. He gives us some valuable insight. These form, these form the standard, the eight truths, the four noble truths, and the eight whatever the standard of our threefold karma, action, energy, or conduct, speech, and thought. The most important element of these teachings is the middle path. There's that word again. There's these phrases that you'll hear over and over and over. Between two extremes of passions and asceticism. Throughout the entire history of Buddhism, the middle path has remained the central concept, although its interpretation varies with the different schools. To the Buddha, it was a way of life, a sensible, moderate, comprehensive, practical system of ethics. He called the tropes normal because he regarded nobility as a moral and not a racial quality. His order established on moral principles a brotherhood without distinction of caste. It sounds like he tried to make things better. All right, so Zen. Um, who's, who's heard of Zen Buddhism before this study? Yeah, the, the reason why you have um, is because it is, very, it is very popular in Western culture. Uh, what Dr. Martin says multiple times is that Zen Buddhism was kind of an, an, an adaptation of classic Buddhism so that it would be more accepted for Western culture. Uh, that's kind of scary that we're that easily influenced and that easily convinced, that you can take an empty, void, false religion and tweak it a little bit, and that the American culture will gobble it up. But, that, but that's basically what's happened in many areas. Uh, Zen has nothing to teach us in the way of intellectual analysis, nor has it any set doctrines which are imposed on its followers for acceptance. In this respect, Zen is quite chaotic, if you choose to say so. Probably Zen followers may have sets of doctrines, but they have them on their own account and for their own benefit. They do not owe the fact to Zen. Therefore, there are in Zen no sacred books or dogmatic tenets, nor are there any symbolic formula through which an access might be gained into the sig signification of Zen. If I am asked then what Zen teaches, I would answer what? 
Zen teaches nothing. Whatever teachings there are in Zen, they come out of one's own mind. We teach ourselves. Zen merely points the way. Unless this pointing is teaching, there is certainly nothing in Zen purposely set up as its carnal doctrines or as its fundamental philosophy. Now, how scary is that to hear that, we have, that there are thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people? We know, I think there's about a half million, half million or so Buddhists, I, th- I think it's said in the United States, and probably most of them are these Zen Buddhists, and it's, there's like basically nothing to follow. I mean, I just, I, mean, I, just, I mean, you know, it just, just, then just don't do it. I mean, do something else. Yes, Judges. The Book of Judges. Yes, we talked about that last week. Nature of God morality. I see much common ground in Zen and the mysticism of Meister Eckhart as he wrote, The eye by which I see God is the same as the eye by which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one and the same. And everybody go, ah. One in seeing, one in knowing, and one in loving. When I have shut the doors of my five senses, earnestly desiring God, I find him in my soul as clearly and as joyful as he is in eternity. Zen consciousness is a mind made one with life and even at its lowest produces a sense of oneness with all humanity. Who, having this, needs rules of morality? Is Zen a religion? It is not a religion in the sense that the term is popularly understood. For Zen has no God to worship, no ceremonial rites to observe, no future abode to which the dead are destined, and last of all, Zen has no soul whose welfare is to be looked after by somebody else, and whose immortality is a matter of intense concern with some people. Zen is free from all these dogmatic and religious encumbrances, which means it's basically nothing. I mean, nothing. There's another picture. It's called the Lao Buddhist Temple. That's right there on the side of the road. When you drive down on Nashville Highway, that'll be the sign that you see right there. I gotta admit, I wish I knew who their mason was, because that brickwork's pretty good. Jim, what do you think? I mean, is that brickwork good or what? I mean, it's good, man. It looks nice and symmetrical. And I mean, they yeah, they we need to they need to get saved so they can help us build stuff. Nature of God, morality. When I say there is no, oh, I meant to meant to. um, No, that's right. That's different. Okay, I'm sorry. There was a a duplication pane I had in here, and I, I deleted, and I thought that was it. When I say there is no God in Zen, the pious reader may be shocked, but this does not mean that Zen denies the existence of God. Neither denial nor affirmation concerns Zen. When a thing is denied, the very denial involves something not denied. The same can be said of affirmation. This is inevitable in logic. Zen wants to rise above logic. Zen wants to find a higher affirmation where there are no antithesis, which that is impossible. I mean, mean, physics, I think it's physics... For every action, there is an equal and opposite what? Right. Therefore, in Zen, God is neither denied nor insisted upon. Only there is in Zen no such God as has been conceived by Jewish and Christian minds. For the same reason, Zen is not a philosophy. Zen is not a religion. They just need to do away with it, amen? It just needs to be done away with. It's just a bunch of confusing gobbledygook. 
I have, I mean, uh, the other, the other uh, Buddhism has been around, I think, 500 years before uh, Christianity. So Buddhism would have been somewhere around maybe 500 BCE or BC. Uh, then Zen Buddhism, is, I think, was a later development that came later. So I, I don't remember exactly when. I think it may have been in the notes from last week. I'm, I'm purposely not memorizing this stuff, okay? Because I don't, I don't want to know. I mean, I, mean I, need to, I know enough to talk to somebody about it, but I, other than that, it is, it is a waste of brain space. <clears throat> For it is not the life of the soul that lives in perfect freedom and in perfect unity. There is no freedom or unity in exclusion or limitation. Zen is well aware of this. In accordance with the demands of our inner life, therefore, Zen takes us to an absolute realm wherein there are no antithesis of any sort that is physically impossible. Therefore, Zen does not mean a mere escape from intellectual imprisonment, which sometimes ends in sheer wantonness. There is something in Zen that frees us from conditions and at the same time gives us a certain firm foothold, which, however, is not a foothold in a relative sense. The Zen master endeavors to take away all footholds from the disciple which he has ever had since the first appearance on earth, and then to supply him with one that is really no foothold. Now, does anyone that's been to all these sessions, are you sensing a bridge over into something else from that statement? Somebody say Scientology. Do you remember what Scientology tried to freed you from? Enagrams. Remember? And enagrams were, the, were these, these thoughts or these memories from previous lives, and when they hooked you up to the tin can machine and ask you these questions, the needle would jump. And when the needle jumped, that was an enogram. And so they had to talk you out of the enogram. That's, that's kind of, kind of sort of what he's talking about here, the foothold. So an enogram would be a foothold. So we're trying to get free of all these, these footholds. And then there are no miracles. Oh, man, no miracles. No supernatural interventions. There's no fun in that. Ways nor, refu nor, nor refuges. We bear the whole responsibility for our actions, and no sage, whomsoever he be, has the right to encroach on our free will. My goodness. We are at the same time responsible for our slavery and our freedom. The chains of our enslavement have been forged by ourselves, and only we can break them. Whew. All right, Zen teaching, sin and evil. The opposites, and I'm not even going to try to say that, Vandava, of light and darkness, good and evil, pleasure and pain, are the essential elements of the game, for although the Godhead is identified with truth, consciousness, and bliss, the dark side of life has its integral part in the game, just as every drama must have its villain to disrupt the status quo, and as the cards must be shuffled, thrown into chaos, in order that there may be a significant development of the play. Do y'all have any idea what he just said? I have no idea. I mean, I, I, it, I, for Hindu thought, there is no problem of evil. In Hindu and Buddha, it, it are related, the conventional relative world is necessarily a world of opposites. Light is inconceivable apart from darkness. Order is meaningless without disorder. And likewise, up without down, sound without silence, pleasure without pain. Now, didn't he say just a few minutes ago that he was trying to get away from antithesis? But yet, each one of those is the antithesis of the other. So, I, I, 
That is another statue from the one on Old Nashville Highway. There are several pictures. That one has multiple faces on the top. I don't think normal Buddha statues have, or whatever that statue is. That looks like it might be a, may be different from a Buddha. I don't know. For this reason, the masters talk about Zen as little as possible and throw its concrete reality straight at us. This reality is the suchness of our natural nonverbal world. If we see this just as it is, there is nothing good, nothing bad, nothing inherently long or short, nothing subjective, nothing objective. There is no symbolic self to be forgotten and no need for any idea of a concrete reality to be remembered. It's just like all of their, I mean, if you won't even call it theology, it's not really, it's not theology, all their ramblings, I mean, it's all interrelated and says the same thing with different words multiple times. From the foregoing, the deep-seated philosophical mysticism of the Zen school of mediation of Buddhism is accurately reflected, revealing Zen to be a philosophy that negates a personal God. Secondly, it denies the reality of sin due to the absence of an absolute standard of revealed law and holiness. Thirdly, it rejects the necessity of personal redemption from the penalty of sin revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way. And that's just, he's just giving you the Christian response to, the, to the, whatever they believe, whatever it is they believe. Nothing, that there's nothing. The true nature of Zen in reality, that of ego absorption, to the extent that one becomes obsessed with self, not with sins, and the desperate need for their erasure, but just me and my thoughts, I guess. I, I, I don't know. Dr. Chang's book, uh, we've talked about him, I think, a little bit before, but he, 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 was a, he was a Buddhist that left Buddhism and now writes against, or not against, but writes from a, from a Buddhist perspective to help, help us understand the finest work from a Christian standpoint on the subject of Zen Buddhism was written by Lit Singh Chang, a Christian convert from Zen, the former president of Kang Nan University and special lecturer in missions at Gordon Divinity School in Massachusetts. He's performed a real service for us by analyzing Zen from the inside in his illuminating book, The Spiritual Decline of the West. So th this, 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 gets, this gets a little bit more understandable as, as he talks about it. It supersedes the doctrine of a real creator. In the first place, Zen is a very peculiar and subtle form of atheism. I could not agree more with that statement. It denies the infinity and transcendence of a living personal God by identifying him with nature. All visible objects thus become subjective modifications of self-existence, unconscious and impersonal essence which may be called God, nature, the absolute, oneness, suchness, or tathata, etc. It robs God of his sovereignty by denuding him of his power of self-determination in relation to the world. God is reduced to the hidden ground. So, so the first thing it does, it supersedes the doctrine of a real creator. I mean, it's all about you. It's all subjective. I mean, everything revolves around you. You are the center of the universe, period. It engenders a spirit of mysticism, Secondly, it has a strong tendency to engender, although they deny the spirit of mysticism by taking refuge in its doctrines of radical intuition, no dependence upon words and letters, special transmission of the mind, 
Satori is almost entirely lacking in intellectual content and yet filled with intense emotion of conviction and the mystic returns from it with a sense of great illumination. The source phenomenon is common among Christian mystics who frequently after ecstasy assert that they have had tremendous revelation yet are unable to state explicitly any of them. So mysticism has been, mysticism has been a, a struggle in all religions for, for, I mean, for centuries. This, you know, the ecstatic experience, because what are all of us looking for? I mean, everybody is looking for some type of supernatural experience. Uh, what was Mary Baker Eddy looking for in her supernatural experience in Christian science? I mean, over and over and over and over again, she, she claimed to have healing power. Everything about Christian science was, was, was healing power. So every, every, all of them, Joseph Smith with, with uh, the Mormons, I mean, he had a revelation from the angel Moroni, and supposedly he got this mystical revelation from the angel that he knew where the Bible for the Western world was buried. He, found, he dug up these, these, uh, these steel tablets on the hill called Cumorah, he translated them with the peep stones, and there was the Book of Mormon. So there's always some type of ecstatic, mystical experience that only they experience, and they can't justify the experience, they can't val validate the experience, but you have to believe them that they've had a what? An experience. Yeah. Now with us, with Christians, I mean, it's fine for you to say that you've had an experience as long as that experience does what? matches what the Bible says. I mean, don't forget that. I mean, somebody comes up to you telling you something wild and crazy, go right to the Scripture. I mean, is there a precedent in, in Scripture that backs this up with this person is saying this happened to them, okay? And if it doesn't match that, then it's suspect, period. And that, well, that's judgmental, right? We're, we're, we're supposed to be discerning and, and, and do that. It disregards the holiness of God. I mean, if it's all about us, <laughs> it can't be about holiness. Thirdly, Zen is a very radical form of iconoclasm, according to the, whatever that is, sutra. The void nature of all dharmas is not arising or extinction, not pure or impure, not increasing or decreasing. If one understands that reality is neither pure nor, nor impure, he finds the Buddha in the dung as well as in heaven. And the conception of Zenith, sin against God, does not exist. I mean, I'm telling you, the, the, the people that are following this, this, I mean, if you even want to call it a religion, I mean, I, I, don't, know I, don't, know what, I don't know what, I don't know what I would call Buddhism other than a false religion, but these folks are, are extremely misled and extremely blinded by darkness if, if, they, if they believe all this garbage. Huh? Yeah, they worship the statue, right. It denies the need of a savior. Fourthly, Zen is a most radical form of autosoterism, autosoterism. The principle of heathenism, as Herman Bavinick remarks, is negatively the denial of the true God and the gift of his grace, and positively the notion that salvation can be secured by man's own power and wisdom. Because everything, remember, Everything in Buddhism is subjective, 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 subjective. In Christianity, it is objective. Okay, now, now yes, when we receive Christ, we, he, he dwells within us, but it's still the object of Jesus. 
within Buddhism, it's all subjective. It's, it's who I am, it's what I want, it's, you know, all that. And that's an oversimplification, but that is ultimately what it is. The ultimate failure of Zen in seeing into one's own nature, certain of the philosophers have called man a microcosm as being a rare specimen of divine power, wisdom, and goodness, and containing within himself wonders sufficient to occupy our minds. This is not altogether improper for Paul, after reminding the Athenians that they might feel after God and find Him, immediately adds that He is not far from every one of us, every man having within himself undoubted evidence of the heavenly grace by which he lives and moves and has his being. <clears throat> in the attainment of enlightenment in 1 Corinthians 2.5, Paul well said that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Zen asserts that without Satori enlightenment, Zen is a sealed book, but the problem is that without special revelation, can never be real. This is not our prejudice against Zen. Even a psychologist is sympathetic to Zen as Dr. Carl Jung shares the same opinion. He says we can never decide definitely whether a person is really enlightened or whether he merely imagines it. We have no criterion of this. Now, we would differ with that. We would say, yes, we do. We have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We have the knowledge of God, <clears throat> so we would, not, we would not agree with that. In the way of salvation, can Zen offer the way of salvation? Satori always requires a certain amount of subconscious incubation. It's said that a merely chance occurrence, a sight, sound, may bring it about. Often it is accompanied by intense emotional phenomena, such as trembling, a rash of tears, or a cold sweat. <laughs> I mean, maybe, or maybe you just went up a flight of stairs, you know? Yeah, yeah. So the conclusion from the foregoing discussions, it is evident that Zen attracts people by its spacious arguments, but offers no truth. So in other words, it's like, it's kind of like, <clears throat> like for me, I mean, I can read different things other than Christian theology from time to time, and I, and I can be interested in it. But I think what, what Buddhism does is it appeals, I think what Zen Buddhism does it appeals to people that are intellectuals that want to just read goofy stuff and think that somehow reading that goofy stuff makes them smarter. I mean, I think that's, I think that's basically who, who, who Zen Buddhism appeals to. Because, I mean, you know, when you start rattling off some of those words that, 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 they, that they believe, I mean, that do, you do sound somewhat smart, and that would be... That would stimulate someone's interest to want to know more. It's like, it's like sitting down and listening to somebody who's well-versed, like a doctor who can, who can use terminology about the body. I mean, I don't know if you've ever talked to a, a doctor or, or a mechanic that really knows, knows his stuff. They can talk about the different parts of a car. I mean, it's interesting to, to hear and interesting to try to understand. But when it comes to Buddhism, it is a false religion that is empty and vain and void of power. And so it is a complete waste of time and will lead you directly away from God. <clears throat> it is the delusion of blind guides, but is not the true way. It casts some dim light, but does not give the true light nor the life, the life that was the light of man. The whole creation groans and travails in pain, searches and probes in darkness, yet man comprehended not the light which has come into the world and shines in the darkness. They loved the darkness rather than the light, and thus became easy prey of the false prophets." 
Zen is objectionable not only because it is inadequate in its teaching, but also futile in its effects. It's inadequate because it denies the infinity and transcendence of a living and personal God by identifying him with what? Nature. <clears throat> and that's basically what the Wiccan does. The Wiccan is, they, they, they see nature as God. And that's how they, they worship. They see the trees, they see the plants, they see, that's how they see that. And there's Wiccans everywhere, too. They're, they're, and that, that's been growing for the past 20 or 30 years. They actually had in, when I was in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, it was um, Texas Christian University. I don't know why it's called Christian. But anyway, they had a Wiccan chapter at TCU. At TCU. When I was there, that would have been back in 2004, three and four. This is a very subtle form of atheism disguised by the language of theism and embellished with seductive eloquence. Did you hear that? That's very important to hear. It is, it is a very subtle form of atheism that is disguised by theism and embellished with seductive eloquence. At the very beginning, one of the things that, that Dr. Martin told us to look for in cults is that they use Christian vocabulary sometimes. They use these words that sound good, but it does not represent the same thing that biblical theology does. And that's how they bait you in and fool you. It engenders a spirit of mysticism. We've talked about that already by taking refuge in its doctrines of radical intuition by looking into one's own nature. But to look within for an authoritative guide without divine revelation will surely fail into the delusion of Satan. Fall, excuse me, not fail, fall. Number three, it denies the need of external rules of morality. This will inevitably plunge mankind into pure anarchic relativism. What does that mean, anarchic relativism? What does that mean? Yes, anarchy means just no, no government, complete chaos. And relativistic means it's whatever I think it should be, that's the way it's going to be. Then the other person has the exact same thing. Whatever they think it should be, that's the way it should be. And so you mix all that together, and what do you have? Massive chaos, just massive chaos, which is where our country is quickly going, is it not? Massive chaos, okay. It rejects the grace of God and the need of a Savior by exalting and deifying man. That's the oldest sin in the book. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? What did Eve want to achieve when she ate the fruit? She wanted to be like who? She wanted to deify herself, right? And Adam did the same thing. And that's, that's, that's man's problem, that's what, like, talking about in the Word of God, serving mammon or serving God. We serve in mammon. We're trying, we're trying to be powerful like God, trying to be rich like God, all that. Same thing. This will surely lead the world to eternal perdition because the whole godless world lies in the power of the evil one. Indeed, it is a way which seems right unto man, but the end thereof, the way is death. The ultimate goal of Zen Buddhism is the freeing of the will so that all things bubble along in one interrelated continual. See that, see that vocabulary? That's, that's what I'm talking about. Well, Master Zen Buddha, can you help me understand what I'm supposed to do today for my life? Well, if you will just look within, you will notice that all things bubble along one interrelated continual. Oh, wow, thank you, Zen Master. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, that sounds kind of cool. I want everything in my life to bubble along, don't you? Right? Okay. Those who would be disciples of Zen must allow their ego to be detached until one's real self calmly floats over the, 
Charles confused. You hear this vocabulary? Like a ping pong ball skimming over the turbulent rapids of life. Shelby, you are nothing but a ping pong ball just floating over the rapids of life. And heading toward where? Nirvana. Yes. In a world faced with deprivation, hunger, disease, death, and ever-present shadow of nuclear warfare, the denial of such reality borders on the criminal. That's, that's a good statement. That's a good statement. In other words, the whole world, who cares what's going on with the whole world? All that matters is the ping-pong ball on the top of the river going downstream. The only thing that matters is me and my happiness and what I want and how I see the world and whatever happens to everybody else, who cares? You know, it's, it's totally subjective. Is that, how, is that how we are? Is that what Christ taught us? No. 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 He put us in dominion over the world. There is a stewardship we, we, we are given by God as his co-regents. To, 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 we're vice-regents of this world. I mean, so, so we are given a stewardship to do that. We're not, it's not just all about us. I mean, what, what is the uh, Philippians? We should care more about the needs of others than our own. Right? Philippians. Zen Buddhism, in our opinion, is the most self-centered, selfish system of philosophy that the, depra- that the depraved soul of man can embrace, for it negates the two basic principles on which all spiritual reality exists. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. It's good. For Zenists, it is love of self first, last, and always. This is the core of Zen, which releases one from spiritual responsibility and substitutes intellectual enlightenment for conversion and the absence of concern for one's fellow man for peace with God. Historically, Buddhism has produced nothing but indescribable conditions under which its subjects live. For in almost every area of the world where Buddhism of any form holds sway, there there stalks the specter of disease, hunger, and moral and spiritual decay. And why would that be? Why would that be? Because I don't care what's going on with somebody else. All that matters is, is me and my Zen nirvana advancing peace, you know? The peoples of the Orient are the slaves of their religions, and Buddhism, with its egocentricity, inherently selfish concept of life and of responsibility to society, is by all odds one of the greatest offenders. Let those who consider Zen as a superior form of religious philosophy look well at its history and its fruit, for by their fruits ye shall know them. That's Jesus talking, right? Okay, reincarnation. Like other cults, this is karma. Teaches salvation by works. Now, how many of y'all, well, I think I've asked this before, how many of us have heard the term karma before? Okay, now be honest about it, okay? I'm fixing to ask a very convicting question, okay? How many of you have used karma in a sentence before? I have, but it was years ago. Years ago. I'm going to say many, many years ago, okay? But, but, I, but I have as well. Why is that? I think that's some of that infiltration into, the, the, and this is, I mean, it's hard to, to give you quantifiable evidence for this. This is really more anecdotal than anything else. But in all of the literature that you read, they talk about Zen Buddhism finding a way into Western society. Well, how, in, yes, Brennan? 
Yeah, exa- exa- exactly. And so, so it was. Um, so our culture, for whatever reason, of of all the terminology that you, that you have heard from Buddhism, that one is the one that stuck for some reason. And it's just kind of strange. I mean, I have heard I have heard Christians since I've been a Christian. I was I became a Christian in 1997, and I know in church culture, I have heard people speak of karma more regularly than they have cited Scripture. If you, if you if you wanted to if you wanted to say the closest thing that correlates to that would be like what Brandon just said: you reap what you sow. And so if you, if you uh, sow into the spirit, you reap the spirit. If you sow into the flesh, you, you reap the flesh. Uh, so I think that's probably the reason why that hung. But it's just interesting to me that that one term is what has hung the, 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 the greatest in our society. I mean, have you heard any other Buddhist words more than that one? I mean, I'm just curious. Who's heard, have you heard Nirvana a lot? I have because of the music group Nirvana. You know, I've heard that term a lot. But, I mean, that's just because they're a classic rock band from the, from the 90s. Yeah, Buddhism, that's where it comes from. So it's, it's just interesting that that word is the one that, that, that grabbed. The hippie movement? Yeah. So this self-salvation is accomplished through the inexorable law of karma. Karma, an Eastern term, refers to the principle that one must atone for his own sins Throughout successive incarnations, so it's so it's so it's it's more complex than, than we realize. This is the backbone of the teaching of reincarnation. Since the weight of sin is so heavy on each individual, the reincarnationist reasons that no life is long enough to work one's way out of the depths of such sin. Therefore, reasons the reincarnationist, man has many lives; he is reincarnated which, as we know, is complete and total hogwash. The doctrine of karma, is it found in the Bible? No, it is not found in the Bible. God is just, but he is also loving and merciful. Man's sin must be atoned for. In this one respect, the reincarnationists are right. However, God is one who has the right to decree the method of payment. After all, he is the one against whom we sin. God has not decreed the inexorable law of karma. He has decreed that our sins can be atoned for where? Only in one person, Jesus Christ. And when you, when you say that in front of a group of people that are maybe a blend of Christians or non-Christians, the look on people's face sometimes is just shocking. Number one, you're telling me I'm a sinner. And number two, you're saying that my sin's got to be forgiven. And number three, there's only one person that can do that for me, and he, a Jew that lived 2,000 years ago. That's exactly what I'm telling you. That's exactly what I'm telling you. <clears throat> After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on heaven. The reincarnation, reincarnationist is right in saying that man cannot atone for all of his sins in one lifetime. The Bible says that man could not atone for his own sins if he had thousands of lifetimes. Romans 3, 10, 12. All right, we're almost finished. Four refuting biblical doctrines. Reincarnation can easily be refuted from the Bible by at least 10 Old and New Testament doctrines, but for the sake of brevity, we, we have elected only four, all of which those believing in reincarnation deny automatically these biblical doctrines are the personality of God, the atonement of Christ, 
the physical resurrection and divine retribution. Those are some good ones, right? Those are some good ones. The personality of God. How does our God exist? What's the theology that we describe him? Trinitarian. Every, just to, as far as I, the major, let's say the majority, that, that's fair to say. The majority of false religions, one of the first places they attack, if it is a cult of, of, of Christianity, they attack the Trinity. Every, just about every single one of them goes after the Trinity. All reincarnationists are committed to a pantheistic concept of the deity of the deity. God is conceived of as being the fountain of all existence, from the tiniest atom to the most gigantic forms of matter, and further, these things are all part of his substance which permeates every particle of existence. So, this table right here, this table, the pantheist says that God is in this table, and that's why this table holds together. Is that true? No. God created the wood, right, that the table's made out of. God created the human beings who's brought the intellect to this wood to chop the wood down, to shape it, to sand it, to put it together the way it is. And God's power holds the cosmos together, so God's power holds the molecular and the atomic structure together that holds this wood together. But God himself is not in this wood. God himself is in us through how? The Holy Spirit, right. So pan, pan, I get confused, panentheism and pantheism, they're very related terms. So, so that, that's kind of what they, that's what they believe, is that God is in everything. No, God is not in everything. But what God created is in everything. God remembers, that is absolutely true, God speaks, no question about it. We've got a book that he wrote. God hears, sees, and creates, no question about it. God knows, he has a mind. God is a personal spirit. God has a will. God will judge. So that's the personality of God. Buddhism believes none of that conclusively, conclusively and explicitly. You might can find little bits and pieces, you know, through like, but but not they don't teach that. The atonement of Christ, reincarnation is refuted most decisively by the atonement of Jesus Christ, since the doctrine of the atonement teaches that God, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, has purged believers from all their sins and counted them righteous for the sake of His Son. Reincarnationists, on the other hand, claim that successive rebirths are the instrument of cleansing for the soul and thereby do away with not only the efficacy of the atonement, but the very necessity itself of Christ dying at all for the sins of the world. And why anybody would believe that is, is just beyond me. The Bible, however, clearly teaches that without the shedding of blood, there is no what? No remission of sins. And Christ purchased the church with his own blood, which is not corruptible as silver or gold are, but which is precious and the price of the soul's redemption, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement by reason of the life. For the adherent of the reincarnation theory, then, almost endless circles of rebirth are necessary to cleanse the soul from sin. But for the Christian, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, redemption by blood through the sacrifice of him who loved us and hath washed us from our sins in his own blood. And there's all the scripture references for all that, and there's more than that, obviously. 
the physical resurrection of Christ. This should be the last couple of slides. Um, reincarnations do away altogether with physical resurrection and even claim that Christ rose spiritually, not physically. What does that sound like? Just about everything. Any, any, any false doctrine that tries to diminish the resurrection, all of them will say, if they do believe Jesus rose from the grave, he rose, he rose spiritually and not physically. In other words, he may have had a body, but it wasn't a real body. That is not true. The Bible is full of evidence that his body was real. It was different than it was before he died. There's no question about that. But nevertheless, it was a body that could be touched, that could eat, that could pass through walls. Uh, the way I've heard it explained was, was that when he was raised from the dead, he had a body that could exist on earth and travel to heaven at the, just, just with, without changing anything. The same kind of body that we will have when we are raised from the dead. So... <clears throat> and then he gives you some evidence there. The Maus disciples did not recognize their risen Lord until they revealed themselves, whereas if he had risen in his former body, it is claimed they would have known him immediately. I mean, that's, there, there's, there's several um, uh, other passages that, that explain that. Further than this, such persons often refer to 1 Peter 3.18, where it states that Christ was made alive in the spirit, the inference being, inference being that, his, uh, that his was a spiritual resurrection. These objections Though apparently valid, crumble under the relentless pressure of sound exegesis, for in no way does Christ veiling his identity from some persons after his resurrection prove that he was not physically raised, as any cursory study, cursory study of the Greek at the respective text clearly indicates. The key to understanding these veiled appearances are found in Luke 24, 16, and 31, two texts, reincarnationist, reincarnationist I'm tired of saying it, religiously avoid commenting upon for the obvious reason that a correct exegesis of them decimates their spiritual resurrection claims. We further see that Christ was not raised as spirit and that in the Bible a spiritual resurrection is never taught at all for his body did not know corruption and on the third day his spirit and soul returned to the same body and brought it to life. Henceforth it was a glorified body, model of all the bodies of the saints. It could pass through walls, but it could be handled and felt. It could ascend into heaven, but before it did, so it could eat fish and honey. What is unmistakably asserted then is that while Christ died on Calvary, he was made alive in a spiritual body. Thus we see that the eternal word became flesh for the suffering of death, ceased living a mortal fleshly existence and began to live a resurrection life in a spiritual body, but a body nonetheless. Divine retribution, this should be the final one. The Bible unmistakably teaches that at the death of the physical form, the soul leaves the body, and if saved, is instantly transported to the presence of God. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ, on the other hand, go instantaneously to hell, a place of conscious separation from God and spiritual torment of a terrible nature. In addition to this, the Bible further warns that at the last judgment, the unsaved dead will be cast into outer darkness there to wander forever in conscious separation and the indescribable retribution of eternal fire for the endless ages of eternity. Such is the divine will, Scripture tells us, for those who have committed the infinite transgression of rejecting God's love as expressed in Jesus Christ. To this eternal pronouncement, reincarnationists can offer no reputation, only a denial and the pretended mysticism that dictates cycles of reincarnations in a clever attempt to accomplish what the Lord in his word has already ordained, perfect justice at the hands of God's Son, the perfect righteous judge. 
This guy has got a wonderful way with words. I, I have loved studying this book. He is one of the best theologians I think I have read in, in years. Christians do not look forward to reincarnation. We look forward to what? Resurrection. When Christ will return and clothe us with glorified bodies so that we may eternally serve and worship God. Our glorification is not accomplished by our own efforts, but by the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians have the assurance from God's word through the Holy Spirit that he who raised up Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. There's another picture of that place on old Nashville Highway. There it is. And that's it. Um, prayer requests right quick like, and then I've got a really interesting thing that our brother John Denton discovered. I'll read that to you in just a second. Let's see. Uh, Alicia McFarland... T.J. Shoemaker, her brother, got a kidney patch. His surgery is March... Oh, excuse me, a kidney match. I'm sorry. His surgery will be March the 12th, so pray that the surgery goes well and his body will accept the kidney and not reject it. Uh, Gwen Smith, her aunt, was diagnosed with small cell carcinoma lung cancer, not the good kind, so we need to be praying for her. Okay, that's uh, T.J. Shoemaker, her brother, and her Aunt Gwen Smith. Also, remember the son-in-law of Gadam and Viola Sultan, currently deployed with the Navy in Bahrain. Remember him in prayer. And then remember the uh, Tomlinsons and the death of uh, Miss Wanda. Now, this is, what, <laughs> this is what John found. John Denton, he's right back there. Y'all you know who John is. He's got that big, big, beautiful beard back there. There he is. Um, he was looking for, researching on a handicap sticker for your car, right? Okay. And he said he found it online that one of the ways to qualify for a handicap parking in Tennessee is that if you are seeking treatment for a disability solely through prayer and the practice of religion and certified by a Christian science practitioner, you can get a handicap sticker. So, how interesting is that? That is crazy. Well, we are done with Buddhism, praise God. Y'all whoop, whoop it up over that. I mean, my goodness gracious, I, that, that just like just strained my brain further than, I mean, my, my brain just soaks up Christian theology. I mean, I can study Christian theology. My brain just loves it and just, I mean, I can just, I can read Christian theology, listen to Christian preachers all day long, but that kind of stuff. I mean, I know it's important that we understand some of it enough to, to be able to, to talk to somebody to hopefully, you know, win them out of it. But my goodness, I would rather play Monopoly than study Buddhism. Amen? Got any Monopoly lovers out there? So, <laughs> all right, well, that's, uh, that, that's it. Father, I thank you for leading us down this way because although it is difficult for me to spend so much time studying false religions. I do understand that this is war, and we need to understand the enemy's strategy. And so, Father, I pray that, that uh, studying these false religions will bear fruit, especially as we are about to begin to go back out into the community uh, for uh, follow me at some point after Easter. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that, that if we run into some Buddhists, that we'll know how to talk to them and explain to them about the empty system that they have uh, entrusted their life to. Lord, I ask that uh, you would fill the needs of these that have been mentioned for prayer tonight. 
the families of these that are, that are struggling. We, we ask for strength. We ask for healing for those that, uh, that have physical maladies. And we pray for comfort for those that have lost loved ones. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness and the salvation that we have in him. And I pray that you help us to always remember that, to share that, to share that wondrous story, wonderful story with other people as we come into contact with them. Give us a safe trip home, Lord, and bring us back safely on Sunday. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.